Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 64 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. This episode really is jam-packed with captive goodness featuring five interviews that were all conducted at the Seeker International Conference in early March. In the second half of the episode, we will hear from two relatively new voices in Vermont, America's largest captive domicile, Brittany Nevins, the state's captive insurance economic development director since 2020, and Kevin Mead, appointed president of the Vermont Captive Insurance Association in February 2022. They'll both introduce themselves to listeners for the first time. And shortly, I'll also be joined in the first half by Kristen Peed, Director of Corporate Risk Management at CBIS, and she will be sharing with us her ongoing journey towards forming a captive for the professional services business. Our guest co-host, though, throughout GCP64 is Anne-Marie Toll, Global Captive Solutions Leader at Highland, and Anne-Marie will also later be joined by Alex Gedge, who was recruited by Highland in June last year as a senior captive consultant and is a first venture into Europe for the growing captive practice. But first, Anne-Marie, welcome back onto the pod. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure to be here today. Yeah, great. I think uh, we actually did this. You're one of our first guests on the Global Captive Podcast in 2019. We were recording it in this room. I've had a revolving door of people and you guys are all coming on and recording with me and it basically didn't even exist at that point. So it was nice for <laughs> you guys all to trust me uh, back in 2019. Absolutely. Always supportive, Richard, of you and the mission here and what you're trying to accomplish. I think it's important to get the message out. Uh, everything captives. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a little bit of a void still in the marketplace right now, and you have the opportunity to completely fill that with great content, hearing stories from captive owners, captive consultants, managers, the whole nine yards. Yeah, it's great to have uh, such a diverse group of guests. And uh, yeah, it has been over two and a half years since you took on the role at, at Highland as the leader of the Global Captive Solutions uh, Unit. How pleased are you with Highland's kind of captive offering and capabilities that have been developed since then, really? It's been a wonderful journey. Obviously, we've all lived through the pandemic the last two years. Uh, I joined shortly before the pandemic started and really in the midst of the hard market kicking off. And I, I can't thank Highland and the Highland family enough for the support they've had. Richard Highland and sitting here at SICA today, we have a large contingent of people here with eight of us and Richard and his wife Claire and their support and the entire Highland family. They are they jumped in completely a hundred percent and they are committed to this market space. And I can say it's a testament to our talent we have here and having over twenty people and growing our team to the commitment to the industry and support for SICA and support for other domicile conferences. It's very important, and I'm extremely pleased with the results that we've had in the short time in the last two and a half years. Yeah, and we've, we'll come on to uh, Europe specifically in the second half, and we'll be, we'll be joined by Alex Gedge. Um, but your footprint and reach across the U.S. and other markets seems to have really increased over those two and a half years, even though we were, we've been kind of locked indoors for much, most of it. I've seen a lot of the activity on LinkedIn regarding you know, making new hires in different markets. Why do you think it's important to, to really build out that larger footprint when it comes to captives and, and captive services? I think it's extremely important that you need to have resources in key domiciles. 
I'm not a believer that you need to be in every domicile, and certain, not, certainly none of the captive managers are today with 38 domiciles in the U.S. and over 70 on a global basis. But having resources in Vermont, South Carolina, Tennessee as a couple of our key U.S. leaders with resources, and then looking at oh, a West Coast, potentially Hawaii, and then also with hiring Alex in London and Europe, we'll speak to later, but also resources in Mexico. And then we do have a team of five individuals located in Mumbai, India. And as we look to Asia and the rest of the world, it will be a key strategic part of our plan. I do believe that you need resources in certain areas, but not every single domicile. And we can operate effectively and efficiently from these locations around the world. I guess it's important as well as if you, you know, obviously the, the clue is in the title, the practice global captive solutions. It's important that when you're talking to prospective clients that you uh, can legitimately and genuinely offer a range of domicile options. We, we, we recorded a separate podcast just yesterday all about choosing a captive domicile. And as we said in there, there are lots of options. So it's, I guess it's imperative that you can provide the full, uh, that full list um, to a degree in terms of the different types of domiciles and, and different regions. Correct. As we're developing solutions for our clients, not all of our clients are U.S. headquartered. Uh, just like many of our competitors, we're working with clients that are global clients headquartered in other countries around the world. And when we think about the opportunity and key strategic domiciles, we do not have a physical presence in every one of them. And if we don't and we have opportunities, we have key strategic partnerships. And that's really where we're going to accelerate our growth with some of those partnerships that could potentially turn into acquisitions or acquiring key team members. And that's extremely important to Highland as a whole. And the reason we named it Global Captive Solutions, because we are a global resource, we have the global talent and the individuals with the experience that can help define those solutions from a global perspective. We've seen, and it's a phrase I've used too many times on the Global Captive podcast, and you'll hear it plenty more times, we've seen this whole new generation of captive owners uh, kind of come through in the, last, in the last couple of years because of the hard market. Do you think the, the timing of this hard market has been of benefit to kind of you and Highland as you've really kind of put the accelerator down on, on, on growing this practice over the past two and a half years? Because there seems to be more demand and momentum for captive feasibility studies and consulting services than probably ever before. Correct. I would agree. In my however many years of experience here, I think all of us are really seeing the fruits of labor from the hard market. So I'm not going to discount the hard market, but I also think there's a differentiating factor. And that's really where I pride myself and our team on because I've worked at some of the larger firms and there's a distinct split between some of the different functionalities of management and consulting and advisory. And our approach is one team. One team, everybody can cross train and learn and know and understand the differences between the two or three different areas, risk financing, uh, risk analytics, support. And I think that has helped accelerate us in what we're doing and then being a little bit more independent than some of our competitors. And I think the hard market certainly has been a huge factor. But what we want to do is capitalize on our talent, our differences, and being a, a trusted advisor for our clients. 
So obviously, uh, this interview is, is obviously relatively uh, big picture looking at the whole market, but one of the real uh, specific news stories and developments that's been kind of talk of the town, for want of a better phrase, uh, this week has been the kind of DNO developments recently. Uh, what do you make of this, the new corporate law amendment in, in Delaware, which is permitting corporates headquartered there uh, to utilize their captive, which, which could be anywhere, to self-indemnify specifically side A exposures uh, through their captive? Do you expect to see corporates take this up? Have you already started? This story seems to have permeate. Like uh, I've, I've heard from other consultants that clients are ringing up going, what's it about? Can, is it something we should think about? Do we want to do it? Have you started having those conversations? Right. I think there's a lot of chatter, obviously, with, with Delaware and what's happening right now with the DNO market. There's a lot of interest in retaining this risk. And we have seen organizations, I think a lot of my team members, we've seen taking on side B and C before. Side A, it's always interesting in my mind, and I think several others that I respect in the industry of, isn't it a little bit of a circular transaction? Does it make sense or not to be able to do that side A? I'm very curious on if this will take effect. Um, We have had some discussions with clients but there doesn't still seem to be a keen interest in let's just jump completely on board. We are working with several clients right now on opportunities for DNO and whether or not they take side A or not is yet to be seen, but it's certainly opened up the discussion. The DNO market's extremely difficult right now for placements. I got an email the other day that said a 600% increase for one of our clients, which is unbelievable and looking for solutions. But I think we also need to be a bit cautious and be prudent in, in what you take on and, and how you finance it. Yeah, I think cautious is definitely the the right word on this. I mean, from my conversations, I've had a few conversations even with the corporates themselves who have pushed this, uh, that have kind of gone to Delaware and said, we want this to be an option. And even they, it's not like they're, now it's possible they're doing it tomorrow. Um, <laughs> I think they want it there to be an option. And my read on it is it's a lot of it might be a leverage play to the commercial market to be like, okay, we've got this option now for side A. Um, are you going to play ball with your rates or are we going to keep seeing 600% you know, or whatever uh, increases? So it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. And you know, when there's, when there's a claim, it's going to be public knowledge because the, the statute says you've got to um, notify shareholders if you're paying a side A claim from your captive. That's what the, Delaware, the new Delaware law says. So we'll, it, we'll start to see it shake out. And I think possibly in quite a public way, which might not be good news uh, for the captive industry if there's, if there's a, serious, a serious issue. Absolutely. No, I agree with you, Richard, because if, if something goes haywire, goes sideways, and you have an adverse claim, it could be a little damaging to the overall industry. And, and certainly as captive, being in the captive industry, we want to be very cautious, but we also want to be innovative. And let's thoroughly think through these things so we don't have the bad press. We want the good press out there in the industry about captives and all the good they're doing, whether it's a healthcare system, a manufacturing company giving back to their employees, whatever it may be. We want those good stories on the front page of the, you know, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Yes, absolutely agree that there are many, many good captive stories out there and about how they are used to support companies, employees and not-for-profits as you mentioned and and that is certainly one of the main reasons we try to get as many and as many different captive owners on the pod to share their experiences and, and rationale for, for operating the captive. And our next guest is actually a risk manager who is in the process of forming 
a new captive for their business. Kristen Peed is Director of Corporate Risk Management at Seabiz, and she began by telling me about Seabiz and her role there. So Seabiz is a professional services firm, and we mainly service um, small and medium-sized enterprises on anything they might need to make their business run. So we have a financial services division where we're a top 10 accounting practice. And then we also have a benefits and insurance division where we provide property and casualty, employee benefits, payroll services, and retirement planning services. Um, we are domestic only, and we have around 6,000 employees in, I think it's over 40 states at this point, and we're growing fast. We are publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange as well under the CBZ symbol. Uh, and what's your role there? Because it's interesting. Obviously, it's a financial services yeah. uh, firm, but you're, you do the in-house I risk do. insurance. So I sit in the legal department reporting directly to the general counsel as our director of corporate risk management. So I oversee all of the corporate insurance purchases, managing all of our claims exposures with um, our internal legal counsel as well as external legal, handling our business continuity plan. And over the last two years, I also co-led the crisis response team on our COVID management. So um, lots of different hats, lots of different fun things that I get to do um, at a company like Seabiz. Yeah, sounds it. And uh, yeah, that, that, that crisis response plan is a whole different podcast on a different yeah. channel, I imagine. But usually in this segment of the podcast, we have existing captive owners on to chat to us about, about their captive. But every now and then, and I think we've only had a couple before we have prospective captive owners or, or companies that don't currently have a captive um, and that is exactly the position that you find yourself in now and I believe you do have some previous experience with captives but I understand a captive is now very much on the agenda for CBiz hence you're here at, sure, at yes. Seeker so why is the timing right now uh, do you think to, to look further into the possibility of having a captive? Yeah so I'm not sure if you heard the rumor or not but it's a hard market out there <laughs> in the insurance world and um, it's not looking like it's going to get any better especially when you're looking at lines like cyber or E&O or D&O and we've just decided that at this point it really to look at our risk um, more strategically in a long-term fashion. Um, I had previous experience with a captive at my last position and then when I came over to CBiz when I first got here I was really excited about maybe putting together a captive um, it wasn't the right timing then the market was a soft market at that point you just had a ton of competition out there and so really timing wasn't great then but I think kind of in this marketplace where coverage limits are shrinking you're seeing a lot more exclusions on policies it's hard to find the limits you want and carriers are increasing self-insured retentions and deductibles this really just is the right time for us to kind of make that next push towards setting one up so as you said we've, you've got experience previously of working with captives but this is the first time you're, you're going through the feasibility yeah. uh, the formation process obviously you haven't completed it yet but so far how have you found that experience like what have you learned from going at it from the beginning so it's really interesting having working for the general counsel in a legal department we like belts and suspenders we want to make sure that we've buttoned up everything and you know we're able to utilize our in-house captive consulting practice group to help us look at this but as part of that we really wanted an outside legal opinion to make sure that you know we 
did meet the definition of spread of risk, that we had enough brother-sister companies, and you, you know we wouldn't run afoul once we hit the feasibility study. And so that was the first step that we took. We kind of took that extra step before the feasibility study to really get an opinion on that. Um, this next part, which is the feasibility study, is really interesting. Um, luckily, about five and a half years ago, I implemented a REMIS system. So we put all of our claims and our policies in there. So I think it's going to make it a lot easier to like pull together the data that they're going to be needing. But I'm excited about that piece of it because, again, I've never been from the beginning part before. I've always managed a really like well-established captive. The last one I managed was put together in the 70s. So, I mean, this is like a whole new time to do that. And um, I'm just looking forward and somewhere like Sika, I'm getting to meet a bunch of different service providers um, and really kind of put the pieces together here. Sounds like you kind of been preparing for this almost since you got to Sika's almost, or had it in mind that it right. might happen at, at some point, which, which is obviously a great way to go about it. So what internal buy-in have you needed to secure to, to make the case for the captive and and particularly communicating we always talk on the podcast right. a lot about the long-term strategy of having the captive so it's funny a few years ago and um i spoke on another um panel here at seek and it was <laughs> lessons learned when you're going through kind of um setting up a captive and i realized all these things i did wrong you know six years ago when i first joined cbiz when i was trying to put together a captive i did not get that internal buy-in yet i didn't understand what the pain points were and how i could fix those with the captive um, and so we got a new controller recently um, in the last couple of years and he you know indicated some of the accounting he wanted to be able to smooth out that, um, the treatment of that. And then we also got a new CHRO who would utilize captives at her past companies. And so I started to put together the pieces um, for somebody who would support me, you know, when we went to go present it again to executive management. And then most recently with the um, Delaware declaration that DNO can, you know, be put into captives, our board members have actually reached out to us to say, hey, SEBA is looking at doing a captive. Um, we're really lucky at a company like Sebas that we have really good board members that serve on other public company boards so they're used to captives and so you know kind of garnering that support all around so when we do get to the feasibility study it just really makes sense to keep on moving forward yeah that's really interesting and uh, we're not going to talk about Dino specifically now we're talking about it of everyone all the time yes. um but it's interesting that a story like that because obviously the kind of publications and, and like legal papers that they'll be reading as a, as a board member it would have come up on their radar it just shows when things like those stories like that do permeate it does make it to the boardroom and which should be if you've got the right person like yourself right. in the role that you can be there to answer the questions and it should be a benefit to the industry whether or not you use it for that or not right so you mentioned at the very beginning uh, this thing called the hard market. We, we have heard of it, actually, on the, on the Global Captive <laughs> podcast. We have, we've talked about it a couple of times. Kind of away from setting up the captive, you know, what has been your experience of, of the market? Um, where do you think it is now? And are you hoping or expecting to see a market shift? And do you think that would impact the use of the captive in the future? Yeah, so, I mean, I was just at another conference um, last week and meeting with a bunch of different underwriters. And uh, cyber is going to continue to harden through 2022. The conflict going on with Ukraine and Russia is not going to help that either because we anticipate more cyber attacks out there. So really, um, that is going to drive pricing up tremendously. I have friends who have told me they've had, you know, 100% 
20% increases in premiums. And so I need to start looking at what can I do to continue to mitigate the risk for CBIS, but also mitigate these premium increases. And whether that's um, taking on larger self-insured retentions or taking a layer somewhere in a captive, through a captive, um, those are the things that we're looking at from a longer term strategy. Um, and you know, I think that being able to talk with people here and hearing how they're utilizing their current captives is giving me great ideas on how we can help CBIS with our captive when we get it set up. Paul, when captives are exploring a potential legacy transaction, whether fully offloading a captive or transferring a portfolio of business, is it important for them to know the partner they work with has a full suite of vehicles ready to support their chosen strategy? Yes, that's right, Richard. At R&Q, as a result of completing legacy transactions at the major captive domiciles over the last 13 years, we've built up a compelling portfolio of liability consolidation vehicles. We have companies in Bermuda, Cayman, Guernsey, Isle of Man, Vermont, and for EU business in Malta. This allows us to seamlessly assume legacy liabilities onto our platform without facing endless cross-border transactions. We also have two A-rated carriers, one in the US, admitted across all states, and the other in Malta, with all non-life licenses and freedom of services across the EU and a branch in the UK. This allows us to offer widespread solutions as replacement capacity or as a retrospective front or as a well-rated reinsurer to gain capital efficiency. Thank you, Paul. Well, if you want more information on R&Q, then visit their friend of the podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website or follow the links in the episode show notes. Well, thank you so much to Kristen for sharing that insight. That's a really interesting stage right at the beginning of their captive journey and i am sure we'll be able to twist kristen's arm to get back onto gcp in a year or so's time to find out what happened next now before we go back to Anne marie and alex gedge let's hear from two relatively new names in the captive world at seeker i had the chance to meet in person for the first time Brittany nevins vermont's captive insurance economic development director since september 2020 and kevin mead vcia president as of february 2022 they introduce themselves share some insight on their background and their current roles in the usa's largest captive domicile thanks richard yeah this is Week three for me, so still very, very new. I'm in that pleasant circumstance where I don't know what I don't know. So um, walking around in blissful ignorance, eventually I'll get to the stage where I realize what I don't know and will panic. But so far, the introduction to this has been great. Everyone's been so welcoming. Everyone's been so pleasant. The, um, the folks that are connected with this industry just seem like they want to kind of live by the maxim of a rising tide lifts all boats. Yes, so even true. though there's competition out there, these people are competitive with each other. Obviously in Vermont, we're competitive with other jurisdictions, and yet everyone's real pleasant and real welcoming. And so by background, I'm, as you could tell from me saying I'm ignorant, I'm, I'm not a captive guy. Um, I'm kind of an association guy, so have run associations and worked in associations for a number of years. Most notably, I ran an organization called Prime Global for about 16 years. That is a network of accounting firms around the world who joined together for networking, benchmarking, and education. 
And broadly, we were doing similar sort of things. We were doing conferences, we were doing education, and we were attempting to get the best value out to members. I asked you this question when I first met you on the, on the craft beer tour, because when, when you first opened your mouth, I was, I was a little bit confused. So also tell us, uh, for our listeners, what is that accent? <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a mongrel. Um, so it's, I started off in Ireland, then moved to England, then moved to South Africa, and then moved to the States about 30 years ago. And the best way of describing what I am now is to tell you about the Rugby World Cup in 2011. Yeah, yeah where I was stood in a camper van waiting for my son and my best friend to go watch a game between the US and Ireland. And they're banging on the door saying, come on, we gotta go. And I said, I'll be there in a moment. I'm having a, an issue. And on the bed in front of me was a US rugby shirt and an Ireland rugby shirt. And I came out of the camper wearing the US shirt. Wow, okay. That's and they said, really? And I said, you know, I've lived there longer than anywhere else and I've got the blue passport with the eagle on it, so I'm an American now. And yeah, you can, and you can support the underdog in that scenario as well. That was part of the case as well, was that the US was probably not gonna win. And, it, and the good thing is for listeners to know as well is that, uh, as you can imagine, as he's mentioned rugby there, you may be, you may be an American, you may be working in America, but if you know, any of our Brit listeners who are coming over to Vermont, you can talk rugby, you can talk soccer, you can talk, yeah, Millwall fan as well. Um, Sadly, a little yes. bit, A little bit of cricket as well, but not, not as much. So just secondly then, in terms of your, obviously you've been through an interview process with VCA, you've obviously got to know the association, get your feet under the table a little bit. What are your kind of priorities for uh, the association over the kind of short to, to medium term? I think it's going to start off with a big consultation process. We've obviously got multiple members and then multiple stakeholders outside of membership who are strongly invested in the VCIA in terms of their time and their monetary commitment. And we want to make sure that we're driving value to them, that they are able to get what they need out of what is their association. So there's going to be a huge amount of consultation where they define that value. And then we'll be talking about what initiatives can we produce, either individually or in cooperation with others, in order to ensure that that value then gets delivered. And I think that process is now doubly important because everyone's done a reset post-COVID. And so what drove value going into COVID may be what drives value coming out, but we've got to confirm that or refine it based on what the members and others say to us. So Brittany, you have been in your role for 18 months now. How have you found it? How have you found the captive world? It must be nice to be able to get out and meet people in person after the first year in the role being pretty much locked up indoors. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been um, really great so far since starting a year and a half ago um, in the middle of the pandemic. You would think it would have been the most isolating experience ever, but um, this industry, everyone is just so nice and collaborative and welcoming. And I felt like I could just hit the ground running and make great connections and learn about this industry that I uh, knew nothing about prior, pretty much. Yeah, and we've met for the first time this week in person. It doesn't feel like it because we, as you said, we've been on so many Zoom calls and planning calls with doing podcasts together with, with the great team in Vermont over the past uh, two years or so. And um, and you said, you know, there that you kind of knew relatively nothing about captives before joining the industry. 
you're not alone in that. I knew nothing about Captives before I became editor of Captive Review Magazine, which is mad to think, yeah. um, eight years ago. But you do have strong connections with Vermont, don't you? Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your background with Vermont before you actually came and joined the Department for Economic Development? Yeah, well, and I'll, I'll say kind of a funny story first. So I was connected to the captive industry. I just didn't know it. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's quite common as well. I yeah, think. <laughs> which happens a lot. Um, so my mom actually worked um, for a captive manager and then a risk retention group captive in Vermont. So our house was the the address for the captive. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah. I was just, you know, like a four-year-old just tugging at her arm being like, pay attention to me. <laughs> I guess in Vermont, it's like probably everyone is only one step removed from, from captives in some way. Yeah, it's so true. It's it's wild. And there's so many like generations in this industry. But even then, I still didn't know what captive insurance was. So yeah, I yeah, wasn't connected to it. But yeah, I grew up in Vermont. And then a few years ago, I moved away to Austin, Texas and worked there for a few years. And mainly my background has been in economic development. So my last role before this role, I was managing a tax incentive program for businesses that were um, trying to develop in Austin. So I worked for county government there and I kind of recruited businesses to, to develop there and then did compliance on those agreements to make sure that they were following through with what was expected of them to get their tax rebate. So I just learned through that experience that I love um, working with businesses and supporting businesses and supporting my economy that I live in. I moved back to Vermont, which was a personal choice because I loved, loved where I grew up. And I just got really lucky that this position opened up and it was the perfect position where I could support businesses and help strengthen the Vermont economy and the job growth and just this really big sense of pride in Vermont. I could I could support that, which was amazing. Yeah, no, it sounds like a, a good cause to support. I'm a huge fan of, of Vermont and Burlington in particular. I always enjoy my visits there and I'm really excited to get back there in August for the first time in three years. So um, if people, you know, maybe not aware of the, of the role that you do obviously ian davis did it before you dan told it you know before him and both well known now primarily because of the role that you do now what is your role when it, when it comes to working with the vermont uh vermont captive market uh, and the industry and connecting people yeah so it can get a little confusing <laughs> what my role is i think to people on the outside so i am the captive insurance economic development director and so I am actually housed in our economic development department. So I am not a regulator. Um, and that was done intentionally, actually, in our state so that we could focus on promoting Vermont. And I could get out there and not have this regulatory lens or like uh, a need to kind of think in that way. I can just encourage folks to, to learn about Vermont and get connected with us. Um, so my role is to essentially market um, Vermont as a domicile to prospective captives, not only nationally, but globally, and to recruit businesses to, to license in Vermont. So I collaborate a lot with the Vermont Captive Insurance Association, get raising awareness about captive insurance in general. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. In Vermont, we definitely have a culture of believing in supporting the industry broadly. So not just about promoting ourselves, but how can we be thought leaders? How can we share stories about people in the captive industry? How can we get um, more people into this industry um, to work in it? And so 
I'm thinking in a really broad way about how can we keep this industry thriving and staying on the cutting edge and being innovative. And so a lot of that is really just about getting the message out there. And I think a lot of businesses are learning about captive insurance, but we still have a long way to go. And I think the amount of uses that um, you know companies or nonprofits or government authorities <laughs> you know, can use with captive insurance is just so broad and we, so many people are not aware of it. So that's a big part of what I do. So just lastly, so if, if, if there's a prospective captive owner out there listening to this and Vermont's on one of their, their lists to check out, they should, you're the kind of person they should be reaching out to, to find out, put them in contact with the right people. Yeah, and definitely, you know, we, we have a great leadership team. So anyone can reach out to anyone on our leadership team and that's totally um, appropriate. But yeah, anyone can reach out to me and our, um, information is on our website, so vermontcaptive.com, and I'll kind of just get them acquainted initially and get an intro introductory meeting with our um, regulators, and that really helps save everybody time, too, you know, having that intro meeting, is Vermont the right fit for you, is this a good tool for your company, and then we can go from there. So thank you to Brittany and Kevin for coming onto the pod, certainly two very approachable and professional people that I am sure the industry is already enjoying getting to know. But I am also now joined by Alex Gedge, who joined Highland as a senior captive consultant in June 2021 and is the broker's first captive flag in the ground in Europe. Alex, can you begin by telling us a bit about your new role and welcome to the pod? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's great to be on the podcast for Richard. Uh, so thanks for having me. Uh, and certainly Richard, I think to, to what Anne-Marie was saying, Highland's been growing out in the captive space for quite a while now, really, really brought in some brilliant technical minded people. So the kind of ne next place to look was looking out into Europe. And between us as a team, we've got pretty good experience worldwide. You know, we've looked set up captives all over so it, I've joined as part of the consulting and advisory team here uh, to help with kind of setting up captives and, and strategic reviews and running them a bit better. And Anne-Marie then why were you keen to add a European presence to the to the Highland captive team? Do you, do you see real growth opportunities on, on the continent? I, I do from the fact that I think there's this is a couple pronged approach. Number one, I'm familiar with Alex and had the opportunity to work with her in the past and a brilliant mind as well to add to the team and the solutions we're delivering. Two, I think if we're going to have a global presence, it makes a tremendous amount of business sense to be there based in London and have the access to Lloyd's and other markets, of course, for the type of work that we're doing in the captive space. And three, there are a lot of mature captives I know in the European domiciles, but there's also a lot of opportunity. We're working with a, a company right now out of Spain to establish a captive for them. And I think there's going to be more and more opportunity. And then some of the mature captives there from a strategic review assessment standpoint will create additional opportunities for us to grow. I presume as well, it could potentially work uh, both ways in terms of direction of business. I mean, you might have US clients who are looking at European options for captives because they've got international operations and having Alex on the ground there will help with kind of advising on that. And likewise, I'm sure Alex, you've probably come across European companies who need to learn a little bit more about the US captive market and, and what the options are there for, for domiciles or, or the, work, the right way to structure things. Alex, obviously you've, you've been ingrained in kind of the London uh, and European market for, for quite some time. 
what are the the big themes you're getting from the European captive market kind of at the moment in the last year or so? Do you think there's still room for more captive growth? Because it seems like Guernsey and Luxembourg, to name two, I think particularly, they really are putting on some good new interesting captives. Is, is there more to come? Yeah, certainly. You know, there's a huge amount of activity in the captive space, either setting up new captives or building premium and building growth in existing captives. Obviously, we've we've got the hard market. I think the USA felt that slightly ahead of Europe, but we're certainly feeling the effects of it now. Again, with the DNO space, just as an example, we're seeing three, four, five hundred percent increases year on year, and these are companies who have good good risk exposures. You know, they haven't necessarily had claims. It's just the market has done a sharp correction. And actually kind of insurance it's not just the the pricing of it it suddenly gets into the harsh market issues as airmic have been calling it which is kind of reduction in uh, reduction in limits increase in deductibles um reductions in scopes of wordings and things being excluded so actually there a captive can really step in and fill those gaps and make sure there is seamless insurance coverage and kind of that's also bringing us in some smaller or emerging tech companies as an example or kind of smaller companies who wouldn't have necessarily looked at a captive perhaps in the soft market suddenly it's looking like a really really viable or really interesting or innovative solution for them agree agree completely particularly on those kind of new uh, tech companies and that kind of as i said before new generation of of captive owners i think it's it's pushing the, the captive market in, the, in a really innovative direction just by their unique uh, needs and and risks and marie how how ambitious then is the the highland expansion in into europe you, you mentioned earlier of course you know exploring strategic partnerships that could ultimately move into um acquisitions are you at the moment you've got the the consulting in, in place are you looking to have a, a captive management presence in the region as well we certainly are two of the key domiciles that i think you mentioned we're specifically looking to guernsey and to luxembourg um, with one of our other strategic partnerships we have access into malta already and so we are keenly looking at those two from a management perspective key teams uh, acquisitions we're exploring these pretty deeply at the moment but 2022 into 2023 are, are really our top goals in that space because we think with some of the opportunities we have at hand they will fit very nicely with with looking at closing some areas within the management space within the next 12 months great well watch this space i'm certainly hoping i get the news first on the <laughs> on, on those course. deals um so last question in Amory, looking at the captive market more broadly we've obviously mentioned the the hard market quite a bit but it has obviously really given a, a new lease of life i think and, and re-emphasized the value of captives these last three years how do we make sure as an industry that we really make sure we capitalize on that momentum in the long term and it's not just uh uh, when the market does soften, people, I'm not saying they will, but people move away from captives again. Do you, how, how are we going to make sure that this new generation of captive owners and, and more future captive formations are continuing to made kind of despite the market conditions? Right. No, that's a good point, Richard, from the fact that everybody's excited right now. We're all growing. Everybody's looking for key talent to join because it is the hard market. How do we remain relevant and important? And I think what we need to do, and I think the sophistication of the risk management buyers today is looking for alternative solutions. I think the positives coming out of the pandemic were, look, we have different exposures now. We're not operating the same way we did two, three years ago. And that's changed the mindset. And I think with captives and thinking differently, 
they will remain relevant even if the market starts to shift and change, which it will eventually. It's cyclical, as we all know. But I do think the hard market's here to last for quite some time. It's not going to end in the next 12 months. So preparing and educating the risk management community on the relevance and value that it can deliver, even in a soft market, will sustain us. Well, that is all we have time for in GCP 64. We really have covered a lot of ground. So thank you to all of our guests, Kevin Mead and Brisseline Evans in Vermont, Kristen Peed at Seabiz, starting out on a whole new captive journey. And of course, Amory Toll of Highland. Thank you for coming back on. Thank you for the opportunity, Richard. And thank you for speaking with Alex and myself today. Yes, and thank you, Alex. Thank you. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.